Hey, everybody, we're back on this week's Bald Move Prestige. We're considering the 1998 Wes Anderson-directed film Rushmore. Um, I would call it a surrealist coming-of-age film. Uh, as I said, directed by Wes Anderson. This was his second um, a studio picture. It was written by Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson, which previously to seeing this sh- uh, movie and, and doing the research on it, I had no idea they had done anything but like you know the actor-director collaboration. I had no idea that Owen Wilson... Uh, was was tied as tightly to Wes Anderson as apparently he is, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. This film stars Jason Schwartzman, which is actually his uh, film debut. He will go on to star in I Heart Huckabee's, Shop Girl, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, where he works with uh, uh, Wes Anderson once again, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It also stars Olivia Williams, uh, which is, she got her uh, film debut the year before in Kevin Costner's Postman, uh, and did Rushmore and was Bruce Willis's widow in The Sixth Sense, which is probably where a lot of people will recognize her from. And then she did mostly British films from then on. Uh, the Postman Stink, man. The Costner Stink. Uh-huh. It gets on you. Gets on you. Can't get it off. Uh, and Bill Murray. This is the first film. This uh, I, I also kind of knew this, but wasn't sure. But the Bill Murray has been in every film of Wes Anderson's, except for his first one, Bottle Rocket. And I'm going to talk a lot about their mutual fascination for each other. Uh, but of course, Bill Murray, you know him from Groundhog Day, Caddyshack, Lost in Translation, Ghostbusters, and again, every Wes Anderson film but Bottle Rocket. Um, this, uh, this, this is the this. Since I saw this, this is the first time I've ever seen it, Jim. Uh, I have seen every Wes Anderson film except for Bottle Rocket. I still haven't seen that one. Um, and I quite enjoyed it. What did you think? Uh, was this your first time seeing it? And what did you think of Rushmore? Uh, I've seen it once before. I saw it, I don't know, a decade ago. Um, and I remember really liking it. And the second time around, I think I had a harder time maybe identifying with who I, <laughs> who's supposed to be the protagonist, uh, Jason, mm. Jason Schwartzman's character, Max, uh, and and that's a good chunk of the movie, right? They spend a lot of the movie with the protagonist kind of as an asshole um, <laughs> and, and just trying to figure things out. And I, I, I see what they're doing there, and I think it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're close um, to those teenage years or maybe haven't figured, you know, any of your life out um, as, you know, Bill Murray seems to have uh, not. Well, I, I don't want to say Bill Murray, uh, his character here, uh, Herman. Mm-hmm bloom um so i think like there's a lot to identify with in that character though he comes across as way more of an asshole than really anybody else and it's this prep school background right it's like Mm -hmm. this this prestigious school that he's in sort of trying to be something he's not and flailing around and kind of failing at it um in every conceivable way right the only thing he's really doing that's successful seem to be these plays uh, and his extracurricular activities. And so it makes it really hard to identify with him up front in this movie. And I feel that like the turn of this film where he goes from bad guy to good guy is a little rushed. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so I, I'm left a little bit wanting uh, at the end of this film and not necessarily feeling like it was completely successful. Although it has all of the, you know, the be it raw, um, but all of the trappings of a Wes Anderson film that you'll come to know and love uh in in what I think are better, more focused, more polished versions of this, uh, what do you think of it? 
I I agree. I think that um, I I th- I was really enthralled the first two acts in the movie. I mean, I I saw that uh, Max Fisher played by Jason Schwartzman was very unlikable, but like the movie knew that, and it wasn't asking you to like really necessarily fall in love for him, or you could admire him in the way Bill Murray's character admires him. Um, but it's always like also recognizing that he's insufferable to everyone around him. He has no. Uh, he's got this massive inferiority complex on his shoulders. Um, he doesn't fit into school in any way except for maybe because uh, that's the thing. I was like, is this a guy with modest talents who are is succeeding because of gumps, gumption and moxie? Or are they telling mm-hmm. me the story of like a really brilliant auteur who just nothing else is 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 useful to him? Like you know, math, um, you doing homework, like he should literally just be doing nothing but, but writing plays and, and whatnot. And also there, I felt like this movie had a tone shift where, where you said that, that, um, his turn to good guy was rushed. I don't know if it was rushed except for the trajectory that he was entering the third act seemed to be something that should have been darker and more self-destructive. And he should have got a bigger comeuppance for like destroying as many people's lives as he did. But it still kind of keeps the tone and structure of a whimsical Wes Anderson comedy throughout that. Yeah. But but that's like just criticizing the plot. Um, the okay. acting's amazing. Like Bill Murray is alive in this film. Like you rarely see him like committing to shit, uh, taking hard falls to the ground from a six foot fence, like with no apparent padding. Um, and, and again, we'll talk about his commitment later on. But that was a real joy to see. Um Jason Schwartzman, Schwartzman's like, you know, he plays this asshole, unrelatable character so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does a much better kind of like heel, face heel, face turn in I Heart Huckabees, which I haven't, I'm not sure if you've ha- have seen yet. I haven't, no. Uh, God, we got to watch that film one of these days too, because it's, it's a good book into this or companion piece to this. Um, but most of my enjoyment came from, like you said, seeing Wes Anderson doing with just really smart shot selection and, you know, using his location to the hilt to stage these elaborately like balanced wide shots of the characters isolated. It's very stagey. You know, he doesn't have the money to spend a million dollars to build a miniature set with like, you know, like like if this was made nowadays, Rushmore would be a miniature with like it would be lit and there'd be like cottony clouds floating in the background. There'd be claymation people in the, the windows. You would zoom in on the window to to start the action and the different scenes. Yeah. And he just didn't have that. But he does as much as he can with the locations he's got. And there's just lots of really you can see him um, really putting some of his ideas of that visual storytelling to, to use that he'll later like perfect at, you know, just like you said. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I really liked it just as a, 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 you know, a piece of the evolutionary history of Wes Anderson's career. And just as a standalone piece, it's, it's pretty good. Minus a couple quibbles with the, the, the last act. Yes. Yeah, so I haven't seen uh, bottle rocket. This is only his second film after having done mm-hmm. bottle rocket. Uh, so you expect it to be a little, you know, prototypical of his, his coming, his future stuff. Uh, I, I wonder what bottle rocket is like, we're going to have to, at some point, visit I wonder that. too, because it reminds, I was just thinking when you're saying that it's like, man, remember uh, the Coen brothers blood simple yeah. and how really raw, 
of a of a of a film that was compared to their their later works or even their their second or third work. And I wonder if like Bottle Rocket is that raw because it's like a fifth of the budget of this film. This film didn't have an enormous budget, um, but it was even smaller still. And uh, he he's just he's just got you know like. I, again, I was really surprised at how polished this was compared to like a Blood Simple. I was expecting the gotcha. some of the Wes Anderson whimsy stuff to be a lot more uh, unpolished and and hard to see, but it's all the influences are are right there. Yeah, his uh, aesthetic, you know, re- regardless of the small budget that he's got, but like his his framing of shots, his use of colors, um, a lot of that stuff is coming through, despite not having you know the animation budget and all that kind of stuff. Um, you feels like a Wes Anderson movie right down to like Bloom's office. Um, it's kind of mm-hmm. like one of the biggest examples of Wes Anderson aesthetic in this film. It's like got this deep red background with these ornately framed portraits on the walls in the, with the, with the backdrop of this floor, this factory floor, right? It's mm-hmm. like the juxtaposition. It makes it strange and yet somehow appealing uh, and that's yeah, kind of yeah. Wes Anderson in a nutshell. And this is not certainly my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, seeing that, it was, I, I don't know, interesting, I guess is the word. Before we get into this, I guess, spoilers, should I describe like we usually do with this film? Uh, sure. This film is about a kid. He's 15 years old. His name is Max Fisher. He apparently won a a scholarship to this prestigious uh, kind of art academy uh, called Rushmore. And on the strength of a play that he wrote, I think as a seven or eight year old boy mm-hmm. um, that got him a lot of notice and, and uh, got him a benefactor of the uh, uh, of the guy who runs Rushmore. The what do you call the guy? The superintendent, this principal. It's, it's more than that. The yeah, dean, the headmaster. There you go. The headmaster, the dean. Yeah. Yeah. Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> um, and he's he's now 15 and he's flunking out of every class because he cannot keep his nose out of a dozens of extracurricular activities and clubs that he started. Um, and he is now on a uh, uh, sudden death academic probation, which means if he doesn't turn his grades up immediately, he'll be expelled. Mm-hmm. But against this backdrop, he falls in love of a first grade teacher that's just started at Rushmore Academy and catches the eye of a millionaire mogul in town, a steel mogul. Uh, what'd you say his name was? Her- uh, Herman? Yeah. Herman, Herman Bloom. Herman Bloom. Yeah. Yeah, um, so he's got a lot of, of uh, but this takes place over the first, the uh, four months of the, I guess, the first semester of Rushmore's uh, school year. Um, and, you know, will he get the girl? Uh, will he live up to his potential that uh, he showed at a very young age? Those are, you know, this is, this is a very just weird coming of age film for a very weird Wes Anderson character. Um, I want to talk about maybe from here we can talk about Wes Anderson quirks and like uh, some of the things that he's developed later on in the films. Because when I think of Wes Anderson, I think of his like very symmetrical framing, you know, yeah. uh, a character in isolation in the middle framed perfectly by doors or windows or trees or farm equipment or whatever it is. But it's just very elaborately staged and, and, and locked as a shot so that you get that full weight of the geometry I think of very bright, dreamy pastel colors, which fairly absent from this film, other than a couple of like pieces of set dressing. Huh. I, I think uh, of some some darker, uh, more moody tones, like like hmm. magentas and uh, deeper blues and stuff. 
I guess that's true. I guess I'm getting more of like there's a very Sergeant Pepper slash Yellow Submarine aesthetic. Okay, uh, maybe there maybe In maybe places, bright yeah. dreamy pastels, but like almost not quite psychedelic, but more of a dreamy softer psychedelic. Yeah. Um, montages over retro soundtracks which we got at least two or three in this film uh-huh. fully intact and just weird characters like when i think of wes anderson film i think of bizarre family dynamics mm-hmm. i think of examination of like privilege like like truly wealthy um not not just well like so wealthy that like they don't ever talk or worry about money but they live in mansions they may they might have descended from nobility they might have invented some weird gizmo back in the 1800s um kids who talk like adults and then tortured artistic types and almost every one of those things is on display in this film um even the bizarre da- family dynamics is at first i'm thinking well there's not that not nothing really bizarre about the relationship between Max and his father. Um, he's a little ashamed of him because you know there's this class consciousness at at, at Rushmore. Uh, but then I started thinking that like the Bill Murphy, the Bill Murray, and the Rosemary and the Max character all kind of function as a weird fucked up family unit. Sure, you know, yeah, like that makes sense. Like what? Like when they're rolling together in that van where they're taking kids to and from things and like the the second act where Bill Murray's falling in love with her. Like mm-hmm. it did feel like, you know, mom and dad and the old the oldest, you know, son that they dote over are on like a field trip together with the whole family. Which so, is kind of, you know, spurred on by the fact that they all have weird family dynamics within their real families. Um like like if you look at Bill yeah. Murray especially, his character, uh, Bloom is is very much like he's in this this icy marriage, right? That like, they don't even speak to each other. It seems, I don't think we ever see them interact in the entire movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and his kids are kids that he could never have envisioned having in his wildest dreams. Like, um, and not a good quote. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, these are the kids. (laughs) I I never thought I would have kids like these. Um, Uh so, so yeah, he's got like a dynamic there that is surprising even to himself. And it's, it's so good. And, and the way, I think Wes Anderson is one of the masters at show, not tell, especially when you're talking about um, these complicated family dynamics, because they mm-hmm. sketch all that stuff going on within Bill Murray's family and like a uh, like a 30 second pool scene, yep. a 10 or 15 second scene of him driving his sons to and from work an oil painting. And yeah, that's about it. Like you get everything that he is essentially the Jason, the Max Fisher character who never got that second stage ignition and achieved success, but doesn't know what to do with it. Doesn't know what to do with the wife that doesn't care about him because she's flirting with the pool boy or whatever. Doesn't mm. know how to relate to these sons. Even the visual of the family dynamic itself, like she got the, the redheaded mom, the two redheaded children, and then Bill Murray, they're gray and lifeless in the foreground. Uh-huh. Uh, with a cigarette hanging out of his lip and the oil painting. It's just... They must have I, caught him on I, a good day with only one cigarette. <laughs> it's it's just amazing, and I don't know how he does it. Like I almost suspect that he's got something like an emotional palette wheel. Like You know how you, know, you got color wheel, and you've got mm-hmm. complementary colors, and uh, what's the, uh, the, the colors that clash? The contrasting colors, and like even if you don't know the color theory, like if you want someone to feel warm, you use these colors. You want someone to feel cool, you, feel, you use these colors, and it's kind of fucking works. I feel like that like with this Max Fisher character, he's got a particular emotional palette. And then the Rosemary and Herman are just complementary to that. 
so that he can rosemary sketched the same way uh we know that she's living in her husband's childhood home sleeping in his childhood bed uh and that that her husband was a dreamer and adventurer and thoroughly delighted her and now he's dead and she's got she's drained of her life and she's lonely and all these people are lonely in isolation but Mm -hmm. he does such a you know, he spends a lot of time sketching out Max in the first act so that when these other characters pop up to compliment him, we don't need, like, we just know somehow intuitively how it all works together. And goddamn, he's really good at that because that's the engine that makes all these films. Oh, yeah. um, you know, one really well-defined character like the uh, George Clooney's Fox in Fantastic Mr. Fox, all these other characters orbit around and they're just like emotional shards of that one central piece and you just kind of intuitively get it i and i i love that about his films mm-hmm. he he the other thing he's really known for and i think shines is like kids who talk like adults and you got jason schwartzman who was only 17 or 18 during when this movie is being made playing a 15 year old but like that his he's got this like kind of major domo character this kid that he's his uh uh chapel mate that he's glommed onto because he's got a hot mom, but this kid doesn't know that. And he's taking his role as his second seriously. And he carries himself. It reminds me a lot of like the moonrise kingdom business where they have the like almost militarized boy scouts. And these kids are talking like they're 35 year old world war one veterans. And him like writing that letter, that damning letter that destroys all the relationships in, in crayon, I, I just I just fucking I can't get enough of these little men characters and little women, too, because he does the same thing in a moon rise kingdom with the with the, the the girl protagonist, too. Yeah. As well as like the character of Gwyneth Paltrow, her little ch- kid that's just trying to impress uh, Gene Hackman's Tenenbaum and the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, they all are just like these little Adams Wednesday Adams type people that I just can't get enough of. Uh-huh. It's one of the few I haven't seen is Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, that and Darjeeling Limited. You know, that's the first Wes Anderson film I'd ever seen, and I remember hating it. And that's that that is the genesis of my hatred for Gwyneth Paltrow, absolutely. <laughs> wow. And I feel like I've only seen it once. I need to go back and revisit it and see if I hate it as much because I I don't know. It might have been just. You know, I was watching this in a transition from just watching a bunch of PG-13 schlock that I was exposed to as a witness to like trying like testing adult films. And this is one. It's like, you know, you bite You just take a swig of this and it's espresso. Yeah. And it's it's a strong flavor. It's nothing like anything I've ever tasted. And I think your first reaction is like, I hate it. Sure. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe that'd be another one to uh, revisit on uh, uh, prestige here in in, uh, a couple months in the months ahead. Uh, what's your favorite Wes Anderson film? It's very hard for me to say. Because They're all really good. I just want to caveat this with that. I I, I think we, we had a little bit of brief discussion about, about podcasts I thought about. And I think if you could triangulate somewhere between like Moonrise Kingdom, Life Aquatic and Fantastic Mr. Fox, like that is my try my triumvirate of Wes Anderson love. I don't know that I can honestly pick which of those films is better Um, because like as whimsical and as amazing as Fantastic Mr. Fox is, you know, it's like a fucking stop motion claymation film. And how do you, you know, compare that to like the life aquatic, which is maybe my favorite Bill Murray performance right up there with, with Groundhog Day. Yeah. And how do you compare that with Moonrise Kingdom, which is the, my honest like favorite, like coming of age film. Um, 
yeah i don't i don't know what about you uh it's definitely life aquatic uh with steve zisu it's it's central performance uh from bill murray is so freaking good and you talked about you know the characters of wes anderson films that sort of glue and define that weird family dynamic and i feel like that is the family dynamic there bill murray's character um Mm-hmm. And it, I just love it. It's got such an amazing uh, David Bowie inspired soundtrack. Uh, it, the, the acting is so good. Willem Dafoe is amazing in it. Um, yeah, it, the the plot is so insane and over the top in a a way that Wes Anderson reaches a lot of time, but it feels like somehow more grand and yet sillier than the rest. Right? Like you've got this guy. Who's going off? I, I don't know. I, I I could talk for a long time about Life Aquatic, but uh, yeah, we're, that's, we're gonna have to that's do Wes Anderson film fest. Mr. Fox is my days. second though. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox is near and dear to my heart, and I think it's clearly the funniest. It's probably the most fun to to, to rewatch. But yeah. even like what you're saying, I, I think like the with Steve uh, Zazu is that as crazy as this shit is, it still manages to be relatable and very human. Mm-hmm. Like the emotional palette he's painting, you know, lo- uh, deal- again, because uh, Life Aquatics is a lot about dealing with loss too. You know, yeah. the the thing that's motivating him is this, what is it, like the leopard tiger shark that ate his uh, longtime collaborator and best friend? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's Moby Dick, uh-huh. but told like ro- like a Roland, Roland doll, doll film um, book. I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name. I just fucked it up. The guy who wrote Fantastic Mr. Fox. Sure. Um, I, it's it's great. And I want to talk, like, do a little dive, because I, I watched this. I watched a whole bunch of videos and did a whole bunch of research on, on Wes Anderson. Um, but the one that I really liked is uh, this video that was put out by this outfit called Screen Prism. And it's like a 12-minute video about uh, uh, specifically the infancy of like Wes Anderson's technique and Rushmore and how it later comes out to play. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how like he is very good at because these framing a lot of people say to Wes Anderson's all style and no substance. But this this took quite a few minutes to break down some of these scenes like he uses the framing as part of the storytelling device. For example, when Max and Rosemary are kind of having their second meeting, he's starting to court her and they're feeding fish together and they're walking from tank to tank and they're very simpatico and they're, they're framed from the exterior windows in one single shot. And then when she reveals that she has a husband and then transition to the next tank, the frames now divide them because he thinks suddenly them being together is not an option. And then when she reveals that her husband's dead, they crouch down into the frame of the tank Showing that them being a couple is no and and is 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 a possibility to him again, mm-hmm. and that's nothing that like is it you know it's not literally in the script or anything in the dialogue, but that kind of framing absolutely suggests what's going on in his interior state, and it's shortcuts like that that allow him to sketch these characters so so quickly. Like he can she can have. Yeah. Or he can have um, Bill Murray glance at his wife, see him flirting with a better looking man, uh, see this birthday party, show him like petulantly throwing golf balls at kids and then doing a a cannonball into his uh, swamp pool that he doesn't even maintain, even though this is he's rich and this is a birthday party around the pool. Uh And yeah, you no know, one in the pool, but, which I loved because it's so. And no one, he's the only one. He's 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 and he's he's isolated. He's in this he's in this funk and this gunk, and it's it's isolating him from the world. That shit is really smart, and it's a reason you can tell such a pretty complicated tale in ninety minutes 
uh, you yeah. know, it's like two and a half hours where the characterization is 90 minute film because all the cinematography, cinematography is working double time to tell the story. And, the, and the movement, I thought that was really neat. The movement of the cast as well. Like you can, uh, there's another scene that's very reminiscent of that. Um, and there are a bunch of them in this movie, but one that stuck out to me is when I think it's their first, well, their first meeting certainly between Max and uh, Miss Cross and they're on the bleachers and he's you know mm-hmm. talking with her and as they're saying different things he's getting up he's moving around he's sitting next to her he's retreating yeah. this is all like a game of you know teenage cat and mouse he's playing with this older right. woman and, and it's silly and it's obvious right on the face of it but we're supposed to notice those things um just yeah. as miss cross is noticing those things and and be yeah. intrigued by them as much as she is and yeah i, I think the way he uses both the way he uses movement uh, and, like you said, framing is just on another level. Mm-hmm. And I think it really tell it works because I've I've heard that this is autobiographical for him and Owen Wilson because they both went. They seem like they had pretty mu- uh, solidly middle class upbringings. But like I know Anderson, at least his parents divorced when he's eight. I feel like that was a very formative event because that's something. And like I feel like half of his fucking films, the children, even the adult children are wrestling with the, the disillusion of their their families of their youth um uh he and owen both went to private like boarding type schools uh like rushmore in fact rushmore is filmed at the saint uh john's academy that he attended in texas um in fact uh, the grover cleveland high school is another high school those those two buildings are on the same block mm-hmm. in in i think houston texas which must have made filming hella convenient um uh-huh. But he, he said, and and I uh, I saw in a Wes Anderson interview that he said that this is at least partially, you know, like a heightened reality autobiographical because he fell in love with an older woman in school. And but he does like I think he knows what he's talking about because there's something like the curse of the precocious child is that like intellectually, you know, you're ahead of your peers, but like emotionally and experientially, you just aren't. And they're like the clash of those, I think, was like almost painfully uncomfortable to watch when they were doing the after Serpico dinner. You know, they're supposed to be just him and uh, 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 Rosemary. And she invited her boyfriend, uh, Luke Wilson, mm-hmm. to the party. And you can just tell like this Max goes from like this guy who maybe is 25 to 15 in like 30 seconds. Yeah. And there's still some light comedy there where, you know, like uh, Bill Murray's chiding, I think, Rosemary for doing something. And she's like, well, you're the one to order him the whiskey and the the whiskey and soda. Uh, (laughs) Like just showing how like fucking irresponsible uh, 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 Bill Murray was. But yeah, I mean, they're absolutely paralleling the two. Well, right. I was gonna say two men, the the child and the man here. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing that like I guess the only thing that really bothered me about this film is I thought that they really handled the love triangle between Murray and uh, Rosemary and and Max very well with her like and showing like how Max like uh you know how like selfish and ultimately self destructive the 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 one sided love affair was, but then in the third act he kind of mellows and learns a lesson, but it doesn't feel earned. And then he gets a, a, an age appropriate girlfriend, which is all well and good, but they, and and I I don't know if this is because the movie is loaded with like max semi, like sometimes outright fantasy, like the, the opening of him solving 
the world's most difficult math equation to the adulation yeah, of his peers. hunting the class, sure. Yeah, and there's all like these stagey things. Like sometimes, like the action is literally taking place on a stage. Each act is kind of bookmarked by a stage saying what month it is. But like that closing shot of her kind of like dance, slow dancing with him and 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 looking at him adoringly. I I felt like that is was a little weird, a little like you know, because I I I was. I don't know. I, at no point do I think that Rosemary should have actually shown an a, attraction towards the 15-year-old kid. Of course. And yeah. I felt like they flirted with that just a little bit in the end and left me with a sour, a little bit of a sour taste. But hmm. other than that, it was like I really liked how he essentially sexually assaulted her in her, her own damn classroom. And she like fucking put him on his ass. Mm-hmm. And um, but but he causes that's what I'm saying. He causes so much devastation in this life. Uh, this guy's life. Bill Murray gets a divorce. Um Rosemary has to like he cuts his break almost almost yes which is darker than I think the film that's what I'm saying like some of this stuff is darker than the film's emotional palette Um, threatens him with death in the the graveyard Mm -hmm. and like destroys her career what what and and causes her a whole bunch of emotional strife on what she lose her husband the year before Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's I I felt like they should have just pivoted hardcore into the darkness and kind of gone cable guy with it which uh, like show, showing like just the the disillusion of of Matt, let him hit rock fucking bottom. But again, this is a lighthearted, <laughs> lighthearted Wes Anderson comedy, so they just couldn't go there. Yeah, that's the thing. Wes Anderson doesn't do that. You know, he he does it without doing it. It's it's like this weird stealthy way he has of incorporating incredibly dark moments with whimsy and fantasy. That, that almost makes you overlook the fact that they are so freaking dark. And even like that, that grave scene where he's at his mother's grave and she's got this inscription on her gravestone, like the pass of glory leave but to the grave. I feel like there is a much darker act in this movie that, that wants the, uh, this is something Roger Ebert pointed out too. And he kind of savaged it with a two and a half star review. Yeah. Uh, out of, out of step with the contemporary critics as I, I read a few of them, them too, but I did agree that it did take a pretty, hard emotional u-turn and promised a lot more darkness than it actually delivered um yeah and i think that's one of the things um that makes this you know not not as polished or uh as likable to me is the fact that you've got such unlikable protagonist who by the end you're supposed to come around on as you know miss cross does as as everyone does uh i i never got there with max i was mm-hmm. I was shown so much bad um, of Max's personality that by the time they hurried up at the ending to turn him good, there wasn't enough movie left to to make me truly feel that there was positive change here. Um, the movie was telling me that there was. I just didn't feel it. And I don't know if that's a consequence of... I think it's just a consequence of spending so much time with him being so awful in the beginning because it's like three quarters of the movie he's just truly awful to everyone around him yeah well plus i think part of it is what i'm hearing you say is that also i think you said it best like he didn't really change his approach in anything like right he's still doing this gr- grand dramatic showy romantic gesture the only difference is it's for the right reasons mm-hmm. he's trying to but but are they the right reasons because i don't think i don't think herman is a good fit for you know, Rosemary, uh, knowing what he, this is all a bunch of flash to try to distract from the basic incompatibilities of the relationship. So it does feel 
even though emotionally the film's wanting to have a happy ending and saying, look, everything turned out good, you know, matchy matchy. He's got his, uh, you know, slightly fraudulent uh, girlfriend who's <laughs> kind of does the same kind of academic uh, emotional shortcuts that he does. And Rosemary is settling for a man <laughs> whose li- has been, the life has beat the life out of him when she just yeah. lost a very vivid, dynamic person in her life. Again, the movie's closing like it's a happy ending, but I'm like, this doesn't feel happy. No, there's one line in there that I think they're they're pinning a lot of significance on and a lot of emotional uh, impetus on for that those final scenes where where the the you know Cross and Bloom get together. It's the yeah. one where he's talking about how he's he's essentially trying to spark this thing, light this fire within uh, Bloom that mm-hmm. will attract miss cross and i think mm-hmm. or the thing that she's missing you know from her from her past relationship now and i don't think the movie has convinced me that that actually worked in the end and I, it's not down to like poor performance or anything from any of the actors i think it's really just a matter of this movie needed another 10 minutes to to flesh that yeah. out to make me feel like like the spark that he lit has now turned into a fire within bill murray and mm-hmm. i I didn't see it. Yeah, I also think uh, the uh, echo an early criticism of yours is they could have also toned back the maliciousness. Like, did they? He have to cut the break lines. Ooh. Did you <laughs> yeah. know? Did he have to? Did he have to get the man divorced and lo- like? It's there was a uh, some scorched earth, but the thing that kind of made it yeah. is Bill Murray's character. How like he's fully aware the entire time that he's sparring with the teenage version of himself and how petulant and selfish and self-centered and grandiose it all is like, even when I can't remember what is, is when his wife sued him for divorce and he realizes what's happened. There's this like this slow smile creeps across his face. Like Murray doesn't take it personally and neither does Rose Marie, but like maybe they should. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it feels a little writerly that they don't. Um, like I felt like Rosemary's was best when she like pushed Jason Schwartzman down onto his ass and said, this is ridiculous. What do you, you're a little boy. What mm-hmm. do you think is going to happen? We're going to have sex. Oh, that's too crass. That's something a person that hasn't fucked would say uh-huh. like that was like, that's like an adult putting a child who has overstepped their bounds and is going into very dangerous, uh, uh, uh places, uh, in their, in their, in going g- g- dangerous places back into their place. And I thought that was excellent. But yeah. then the movie has to walk that back, and and I wasn't a big uh, fan of that. Okay. Um, Miss Cross is easily the character I like the most. Like, th- there's nothing. Oh yeah, there's there's no complaints here uh, about Miss Cross. I think she does basically everything right. And and so many movies before, I think it was before this podcast, we were talking about some other movies that have parallels. And you brought up Election, um, mm. which is like this inappropriate underage relationship between a teacher and a student. Uh, told from the male student's male's teacher's perspective and he's just openly kind of wrestling with his the perving on this woman yeah yeah um something that you know you might understand but he indulges in it too much whereas miss cross yeah it absolutely puts the brakes in in every opportunity puts the brakes on any romantic uh yeah engagement here whereas yes you know she wants to be his friend you know he's an interesting guy um on the surface but I liked. I ended up liking her more than any of the other characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. She's great, Olivia Williams. Um, I've never seen The Postman, but I wonder if she's good in that because she's really she has a very small part in The Sixth Sense. But mm-hmm. 
like like they they say in the movie, she's got something that is I don't know a little a little verve, a little pep, a little uh, something that's like you know base level attractive and I mean, also tragic. <laughs> that helps. But. Well, yeah, 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 that helps too. But she's <laughs> I don't know, she's not yeah. like. Yeah, no, I don't think she's conventionally like Hollywood attractive. It's more of like you know there is a uh, something some something about her, mm-hmm. something of just so you can't put your quite put your finger on it. Um, can we talk about Bill Murray and Wes Anderson? Sure. Um, so Bill Murray was a leading man and a bankable com- comedic leading man. You know, he's only uh, five years removed from Groundhog Day in this movie. Um, hmm. But he gets to he he has a he has a little bit of um, run of bad luck in the mid nineties. He has uh, b- box office bombs, larger than life, where he co-stars with a an elephant and the man who knew too little, which is a kind of an ill. Um, I've seen that one, and it's kind of an ill conceived spy spoof movie. And they were bombs. Like they both had thirty forty million dollar budgets, didn't make like three or four million at the box office. And by all accounts, Bill Murray was like, you know what? Fuck Hollywood. Um, I'm just going to do kind of bit role support. And he started having success with that. Like he did, uh, was really good as was his name Bunny. I think his name is Bunny. Um, one of the weird cast of crew in Ed Wood, um, oh. the uh, Johnny Depp and uh, um, ah, fuck uh, Tim Burton collaboration. He's yeah. really good in that. And then he kind of lucks into, I don't say lucks in, he was aggressively courted this relationship with Wes Anderson, said, because, you know, before it got picked up by uh, a, a Disney back studio, this thing was going to be like a shoestring budget. He offered to work for free. Um, there's stories of him like doing grip work on this set, like moving lights and camera equipment and, and, uh, and, and also, um, that apocalypse now heaven and hell play that the uh, that max puts on at the end i guess the studio was not going to finance like the pyrotechnics with the helicopter and all that stuff and bill murray whipped out his checkbook gave anderson a blank check and said finish the scene the way you think it needs to be finished why why and and you know cuz bill murray is like famously difficult to work with which i didn't know mm-hmm. until a few years ago when we started researching like um you know him and harold ramis's falling out like this guy just seems like he's kind of an uncompromising asshole. And I would say it's because of the work, except for when you get a reputation for such a large and diverse crew of people calling you kind of difficult to work with an asshole. You're probably just kind of difficult to work with and an asshole. Mm-hmm. Why Wes Anderson? Why this whimsical pastel you know, fantastic Mr. Fox shit. What is it about? And and I think Bill Murray does some of his best work in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked with, worked with Anderson in every film since this. Why? And I have no answer. I just speculate. Why? Why? The, Why? the only bit that I've seen from him uh, in researching this film that might indicate why is he said, so, so the, the reason he got involved in this film is his agent brought this to him after seeing Bottle Rocket and enjoying that film said you need to read this and he read it and he thought there was a precision and a economy of the writing that he really liked he's Uh, not wrong and and i guess like once you get in and you see the finished product you've got to admire it right it's it's something that there's no one else like wes anderson when it comes to to the films he makes so once you get on that train it's it seems like a pretty easy to train to want to keep writing yeah so yeah. like everything i can see you do. future you know th- future relationship built on that but like i don't know why 
other than just like pure recognition, um, being part of a project that that really has like a, a footprint, a thumbnail, right? Like something mm. you can say, um, this is the mark of this film. You'd want to do it. The other thing is like I I was reading the behind the scenes stuff for this film that seemed like Wes Anderson, probably because he's very young um, and very inexperienced and and kind of like worshiped the ground that Bill Murray li- uh, walked on. That He was oddly deferential to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that's part because I think Bill Murray's instincts are pretty fucking good. And, yeah. you know, I, I do the think there is comedic timing uh, actors in the world. Yeah. So like if you but on the other hand, I know that like when I was reading into Groundhog Day that like when him and Ramus was beating butting heads, like almost always Ramus had the better idea and like Mm. the the thing closer to greatness of that movie. So it's like I'm tempted to say, well, if you get a note from Bill Murray, maybe you should fucking listen to it. And maybe like he just doesn't suffer fools gladly. But like I know also that on good work that he's done, not every one of his notes and every one of his instincts were, were good and accurate. So yeah, I don't know, but I, I, there's something because like, you know, and, and thank God for his collaboration because two thirds of the good Murray we've gotten in the last 20 years has been this collaboration with Wes Anderson. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I always, it's always a delight when Bill Murray finally shows up in one of these films uh, or has a, a, a cameo or does a, does a voice part for it or narrate. It's, it's always like the one, the highlights of the film. So I'm, I'm really glad he's doing it. I just, it's so, so bizarre and, and, and puzzling uh, about, about why. Yeah. Um, I also just love like, man, everything about that Serpico a stage play <laughs> like just the gritty realness of this high school production uh-huh. and then the uh, the behind the scene like uh explosive theatrics about like the guy saying like hey you didn't get this get this line right and he's like yeah but it didn't matter it's like hey i'll let it slide but don't you ever say it doesn't matter and then they get into a fist fight like that is so fucking hilarious mm-hmm. and just a and, and i don't know maybe that's the other thing maybe wes anderson i think he's got this reputation of being kind of genteel and whimsical maybe he's just a real fucking ball buster Behind, he's like a David O. Russell type behind the camera. Just nobody talks about it because Fantastic Mr. Fox is so fucking cute. Sure, I don't know. Never worked with him. Uh, I want to go back real quick to the ending of the movie and talk about it in context of the title of the movie. Because there's mm. the the title of the movie, obviously Rushmore. Uh, there's a line early on and a sort of semi bookend here uh, where he describes what Rushmore is to him. Um, And it's that thing that he found that he loves and he knows he wants to do for the rest of his life. And of course that's bizarre in the context of going to school, going to high school. Uh, You can't go to high school for the rest of your life. And I think he just misclassifies what his Rushmore is. It's not, it's not Rushmore, right? It's, it's, I think by the end of the movie, you're supposed to understand it's writing plays. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, what Wes Anderson thought his, Rushmore was by the time he's writing Rushmore, right? It's it's okay. He goes to this prep school, and he's this precocious teenager who uh, turns out to be an auteur, like a true auteur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me was the title of this film: finding finding that thing you love, doing it, and maybe not trying to be an asshole along the way. Uh, right. I, and I think both him and uh, Bloom find that by the end of the film. Yeah, I he's 
I think also like where you say like Rushmore's a thing he wants to do. That's like probably a little callback to like the longing that Owen Wilson and um, uh, Wes Anderson felt because you know they won't yeah. both had very similar backgrounds. They went to the same college together. I think they were roommates. And like I never went to college, and I didn't have this kind of high school experience, obviously, in like some mm-hmm. kind of creative academy. But I can imagine like the intoxication of being with a bunch of like-minded people that like you can just be creative with all the fucking time. Like mm-hmm. you know, like you're bouncing script ideas. I hear that even though Bottle Rocket came out first, is Rushmore is a project that they worked on together for the longest. Yeah. And like you know, this longing of like once you get out of college and like. You can't just go out into the common area and there's your script writing buddy that you can bounce ideas off of. Like, mm-hmm. and, and like, what if you don't, does the other thing is like, I know that Owen Wilson was saying that like, if, if Rushmore didn't take off that he was ready to go back to like, just, okay, this, this dream's over. I'm just going to go and do something else with my life because how, how, how long are you going to chase this? And, and until you fuck up your life and it goes away. And uh, of course, I wonder it, if no, no, his, is is that what the line in there about him being a quitter uh, is? Because you know, I at one point Max shouts, you know, at at Bloom, "Oh, you're a quitter! I yeah, can't believe you got as problem. far as you did." Yeah, could be. It could it could be because like I think there was this kind of you you felt that kind of like oh Jesus, what if you know what if we have all this talent, we have all these big ideas, but no one gives a shit or we can't get them in front of the right audience and mm-hmm. and figure out a way to package this and because it is like Wes Anderson's weird as fuck. I'm actually shocked. That he has managed to find a, a a place of relevance in like American cinema because it is a very and it's kind of like it's not like um you know like like Christopher Nolan has a very particular look and thing he does in the movies but like they're wildly different and inventive you know in terms of like content and feel and emotional tone like Wes Anderson kind of makes the same film over and over and over again it's the same aesthetic the same techniques the same shots but like. I don't know. I re- it's, it's like uh, ZZ Top, man. They wrote one song, but it's a really good fucking song. Mm-hmm. You know, she's yeah. got legs, uh, uh, w- well-dressed, man. They're the same fucking song. I defy you to tell me otherwise, <laughs> but like people really like it and they got the beard aesthetic and it works for them. So uh, yeah. Wes Anderson is, is my ZZ Top in, uh, of c- cinematography. cinematography. Wes Cinema, Anderson, whatever. To, to me, is a likable David Lynch. Ah, an enjoyable David Lynch because I don't like <laughs> David Lynch, but he does have a similar career. Uh, and as far as he makes these kind of strange art films, which I think it is probably what doesn't Wes give Anderson a fuck. Does. Hmm? Yeah, if you've like if Wes Anderson's films ever stop making money, he's not going to pivot. What would he pivot to? Um, I would be remiss because I am, uh, if, if long term bald move fans probably know that I am, uh, um, a passionate and unironic fan of the Gilmore girls. This is the first cinematic uh, appearance of Alexis Bledel. She is in a very cameo role. She is seen in uh, the Grover Cleveland high school scenes. She's in the classroom with Max. She's in the science fair exhibit. She's the one that's got the smoking. Yes. uh, Like, like effects of smoking on the lungs. Uh, This is two years before her breakout role in Gilmore girls. And she also uh, was one of the signatures on the petition to bring back. Was it Latin? Is is Uh signed Alex Bledel, like her actual name. It's one of those cameos where it's like kind of blink if you and you miss it the first time. And I, I noticed that this film didn't have the Amazon X-ray feature turned on. So I had uh, to look it up. But sure enough, first first cinema role for her. Um, pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, she looks super uh, familiar, but I 
didn't i couldn't place. i haven't seen gilmore girls so i couldn't place her yeah in fact i was deb- until i looked it up i was debating because like she is young and she's you know mm-hmm. she's very alexis bladelli but like you know just a very rough and unpolished version of that so that was, that was that was fun seeing her in that and doing the science fair and all that kind of stuff that's how she got her start nice. her and jason schwartzman uh so there are a lot of wes anderson movies that use a lot of good music and they use a lot of big music um, you know, I talked about Life Aquatic, which is basically all covers of David Bowie songs. Uh, this movie has a few Rolling Stone songs. It's also got my my favorite piece of music. My favorite use of music in this movie is when uh, Max and Bloom are teaming up toward the end to build this eight million dollar aquarium, mm-hmm. aquarium for Miss Cross, and they're playing "Oh Yoko" by John Lennon, which. <laughs> I just thought that was a perfect time that you've got this team up that may be, I don't know, doomed, maybe great. You're not really sure. Uh, but in I that didn't moment, know. Oyoko I, I felt didn't know perfect. the significance of it. So it's like that's kind of like uh, the, the, the Yoko Ono and the destruction of the Beatles kind of like destructive team up. Yeah. And it's like John Lennon's sort of, I don't, I don't know, love song to Yoko talking about how right. like good everything is now that she's read that thing. I just thought it was perfect for the team up. Man, Bill Murray's so good. Like seeing him like training and working out and he's got a cigarette and ever he's got, you know, got his uh uh sweats on, he's he's huffing and puffing, like Mike Tyson's punch out style on that bike, and he's just got the cigarette, lighting two cigarettes at yeah. once. <laughs> Uh, and just the way he does it, like he's not even, it's not like he smokes them at the obvious thing to do is just smoke two cigarettes at once, but he mm-hmm. gets one started like 90% and then like, you know, fuck it. It's going to be a two cigarette day. Lights another <laughs> one. He's talking around both the yeah. scene where he, like his sons are doing something that's pissing him off in the back seat, And he's got like the comic timing of him reaching behind and throttling the kid <laughs> is also hysterical. Yeah. Uh, Bill Murray. There's a scene where he uh, jumps over this fence and like falls and just lands as hard as a he was I think fifty years old in the making and just landed like right splat on his his face no yeah. you could tell there's no padding or any stunt work he just fucking ate it and there's a cut there oh. I wonder if he actually like had to take a second <laughs> it might have because like I could see it knocking knocking the wind because he's you know he's uh, he's not exactly in the best shape like he he, he strips down to his uh, swimming shorts he's he's not a, a human wreckage but he's also you know, not an Adonis there. Like, no, he's, I, this isn't like Tom Cruise. Yeah. This isn't Tom Cruise hitting the dirt. This is old ass Bill Murray. For sure. Uh, a, a man of advancing age throwing caution to the wind for laughs, <laughs> is what it is. And I, and the cannonball thought, scene, like, right? That's, that's I, I'm telling well. you. I'm telling you, I've seen Bill Murray sleepwalk through a lot of shit, and he is just alive in almost every frame, except for the frames where he's not supposed to be. Yeah. Where he is like literally portraying a man beat down by his life situation, and 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 then he's got you know the dead dead Murray, but everything else he's just it's it's an incredible performance to see, mm-hmm. and uh, definitely one of the highlights of the film. Well, that's going to wrap things up for Rushmore. Traditionally now is where we would tell you what we're going to do next, but we're actually recording this in advance. We wanted to have a little breathing room uh, while we had some time to record some stuff this summer um, for, for evergreen content. So I have no idea what's going to be the next thing that we cover. Uh, but if you want to know yourself, uh, a couple places to follow, baldmove.com, at baldmove on all the social media, that's where you can find out what we're doing next. Um, and you know, obviously subscribe to the, the prestige podcast. Cause, cause then you'll just have it right there in your podcast player. Um, 
or subscribe to the YouTube. Same thing. You get the notifications. Does all the work for you. Why try to keep up with a schedule? Just just let your phone let you know when something is piping hot and fresh. So I do like with everything, literally everything in my life. My phone knows more than I do about my schedule. It is my like they I remember it thinking when like Palm Pilots came out and they called them personal digital assistants like that's kind of uh fucking a little grandiose like like it's a little like this is my butler or something it is uh-huh. this thing runs my life and thank god because i couldn't do it otherwise yep uh but yeah put that shit to work for you we'll be back next week with something and until then i'm aaron and i'm jim later